This week, on Myths and Legends, it's a story from Slavic folklore. You'll see that being locked in a room with all-you-can-eat cake might not be all good, especially if your companion is a guy who's rubbing his beard on everything. Then, on the Creature of the Week, if you've ever thought that that cotton ball looks like a baby lamb, that's because it is. Also, it tastes like fish, if you needed a little extra incentive not to eat a cotton ball. This is Myths and Legends, episode 85A, for the right reasons. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. Today's a Slavic fairy tale, but one seemingly outside of many of the Slavic stories I've told on this podcast. So we're not going to see any Vasilisas, Ivans, or Baba Yagas. But it's seriously one of the most interesting stories I've found so far. I loved it, and I hope you do too. Without further ado, here's The Dwarf with a Long Beard. Two brothers, a giant and a dwarf, sat feeding a small fire. They had been hunting the sword for a long time, and just that morning, they had finally found it. It was in a stone, if you were wondering. It's always in a stone. It was the sword that would be used by their greatest enemy, the famed magician, the only being that could ever defeat them. That was why they had been questing for months, living off the land, and now that they had it, there was the question of who should keep it. If it was powerful enough to destroy them both, they obviously had to keep it safe. The giant thought that he should keep it because, well, giant, he said, motioning to his massive build. The seven-inch tall dwarf laughed. Size was nice, but how tricky was the giant? The giant looked at the ground. Not very. But who needed to be tricky when you could grow to the size of a mountain? The dwarf replied that they still didn't know who this person, or thing, was that was going to try to kill them. It could come from anywhere. It could be anyone. The giant brother insisted that he was the best one to hold onto the sword. But then the dwarf came up with an idea. They should both put their ears to the ground. The first person to hear church bells off in the distance was obviously able to hear things the farthest away, and he would be able to detect the enemy approaching. The giant shrugged. Seemed fair enough, if not really supported by audiology research. He watched his tiny brother crouch and hold his own ear to the ground, listening, and so he followed suit. The giant closed his eyes and focused on trying to hear the church bells. It wasn't that he mistrusted his brother. He just didn't see how a seven-inch tall dwarf, no matter how great a magician, could protect a sword. The dwarf's eyes shifted to his brother. He didn't dare move from his position. His brother would hear him rustling. Instead, his beard grew and snaked silently over to where the sword was sitting on a log by the fire. With one motion, the beard wrapped around the handle and hoisted it into the air. The dwarf paused, waiting for his brother to stir, before a smirk began spreading across his face. He had done it. The sword glided noiselessly, and in an instant, it was hovering over the giant's neck. The dwarf wasn't sentimental. Now that he had the sword, nothing could stand in his way, not even his own brother. There would be no chance for the giant to spring up and defend himself. 
no revelation that it had all been a ruse until it all was secured. There had never been any enemy, any powerful magician, just him, just the dwarf. He had convinced his brother to come along on this trip because the sword would need a guardian. By the time the giant realized that his own brother had betrayed him, it was too late. The dwarf had mortally wounded him with the magic sword, and in his last few fleeting moments of life, he saw the smiling face of the dwarf, his brother, and knew that he had been betrayed. The dwarf stood and put the sword back where he had found it. He turned to his brother's corpse and began wrapping his beard around the head. He mumbled a few words and grinned as the thing warped and transformed. Decades later, the prince and princess were getting married. It had been a long season with many potential suitors, but Princess Pieknatka, who I'm just going to call Princess P from now on, had given Prince Dobrotek the final rose, and they were to be married that night. He was a prince and heir to a kingdom himself, and the parents liked each other, and things were going really well. For once, the process worked. The prince and princess were a perfect match. The other guys left amicably, disappointed and teary-eyed, were marking in their last carriage interviews about how she had made a huge mistake. Sure, but they would move on. But the season's troublemaker, the seven-inch tall hunchback dwarf that you know just stayed in the running because the producers wanted to keep the drama going, well, he was not going to go quietly. Someone was shaking Prince Dobrotek. He didn't know what was worse. His pounding head or the sound of constant screaming he cracked an eyelid to see what was left of the carriage. Their carriage, smashed around him. The people, some who had been flung over rooftops, were strewn about the square. He looked at the dust and remembered. They had been riding through the city in a parade to celebrate their wedding. They had stopped outside a church when they heard the screams. The nearly wed spun around the sea of tornado. In the city, it was flinging people everywhere, but there wasn't any mistaking where it was headed. It was coming right for them. Prince Dobrotek stepped in front of the carriage and in front of his fiancée in a brave but useless attempt to protect her from the twister. It annihilated the carriages in front of them and flung the prince hard against the stone wall of the church. When he regained consciousness minutes later, he learned that the tornado had disappeared the moment it had reached the church and that it had taken the princess with it. Princess P opened her eyes and sat up on the chair. This was a new development. The last thing she remembered was riding to her wedding with the prince when they were hit by something. She stood and looked around the beautiful room. It had no windows, lit instead by ornate chandeliers hung from the ceiling. Priceless art decorated the walls, and all around her were tables arrayed with gold, silver, and cake. She hopped off the cushion and walked to the table. Yeah, cake. Well, any kidnapping that includes art and cake can't be too sinister. She cut herself a piece and decided to see how this played out. As she was finishing up her first piece, she heard a noise at the door. Oh, it's you, she said, glancing up to the man being carried in. The seven-inch tall dwarf one of her suitors who didn't take losing after Prince Dobrotek in stride was being carried in on a tiny chair 
by four burly slaves. Remember how in one of our dates I was all like, I have this super fancy chamber where I keep women? Well, this is that chamber, he announced proudly, motioning to the art, chandeliers, and cake. The princess shrugged. She remarked how it was nice, but it hadn't worked out before. She just wasn't into guys with beards, and also the type that would kidnap her. So if he would just turn back into a tornado so she could get back to her wedding, that would be great. The dwarf was now in front of her and shook his head. He explained that he loved her, and in time, she would love him too. He explained that he was immortal, ageless, but she wasn't. She could stay here in this room for the rest of her life, no matter how long or how short that ended up being. Or she could love him, and they could travel the world together as man and wife. But, he warned, even if it took decades, she would end up loving him. They always did. As he talked, he descended from his chair, his beard growing and snaking up Princess P's body until he found her head. The beard pulled her closer for a kiss with the dwarf, but she resisted and slapped him across the face. The slap would hurt any normal human, but it sent the tiny dwarf sprawling backwards into the cake. His servants scrambled to help him, dropping the tiny chair to the ground where it shattered to pieces. He stood, rage welling within every muscle, with fists shaking and teeth clenched, he snarled at the princess and yelled that that was enough. With his command, the room shook. The ground shook. The candles and fire went out from all around the room. And everyone and everything was thrown back a few feet from the dwarf, now standing on the table. He could see the princess, pressed back into her chair by the force of it all, looking at him in terror. His face softened as he looked all around. The candles and fires ignited back to life. As he leapt down from the table... He looked at the princess with a deadly, serious glance and said, Don't you ever do that again. He brushed the cake from his shoulder and looked down at his tiny chair and pieces on the floor. He ordered his slaves out of the room and proceeded to walk out himself. His gravitas was severely undercut, though, because in all the commotion with the slap and the scream, he'd forgotten to retract his beard whatever the correct term for that is, and about three feet out from the table, he got caught up on it and stumbled awkwardly. The princess had to stifle a laugh as she watched her tiny dwarf kidnapper trip on his own beard and face plant on the stone floor. She might have just been witness to his frightening and otherworldly power after he kidnapped her away from her groom, but he just tripped on his own beard and was now turning beet red with a bloody nose. So today wasn't all bad. She also noticed something that the dwarf hadn't, in his embarrassment, he stood quickly and moved as fast as he could toward the door, flustered. This brief show of sinister power was not going well. He just wanted to get out of here, regroup, think of ways he could make her all filled and impressed with him again, and then come back. He shrunk his beard back down, threw the rest of it over his shoulder, and speed walked from the room. The princess waited a minute before she was sure he was not coming back. She couldn't hear anything coming from the hall outside, so she jumped up from her chair and ran to where the dwarf had tripped. She had watched something come loose from his belt, and he hadn't stopped to check before running away. She felt around underneath the table until her hand came to rest on something. She pulled it out. Oh, a tiny dwarf hat. It was kind of cute, but it was also humorously useless. While the dwarf was focus grouping with the slaves about how to make the princess love him, the princess was eating cake, reflecting on select art pieces leafing through books, and trying to look under the door. 
When she was sufficiently bored, she saw the tiny dwarf hat sitting on the table, and she put it on. She went to the mirror ready to laugh at all the dwarf's terrible style choices when she saw the mirror was broken. It showed the rest of the room, but it didn't show her. She couldn't even make fun of the dwarf in this stupid place. She took off the hat and went to sit down. When she realized, she now saw herself in the mirror. She was standing there holding the hat, and that's when it dawned on her. She put the hat back on, and she disappeared, took it off, and she reappeared. Wow. He had accidentally dropped an invisibility cap after tripping on his own beard and being slapped backwards in a cake. For as obviously powerful as he was, this dwarf was an objectively terrible kidnapper. This was not Prince Dobertek's day. First, his fiancée had been abducted right outside the church, where they were going to get married. Then, her dad went full medieval king on him, saying that if he didn't find her, Prince Dobertek could expect to watch his own head roll on the ground. And for the princess's father to crush Dobertek's kingdom. Finally, the king had another idea. Nearly all the princes were in the city, after trying to court his daughter. She had gotten to pick her own husband, and that was a huge mistake. The king decreed that whichever suitor brought her back would be her husband, and immediately gain half of his kingdom. The suitors sneered at Dobertek as they rushed to get everything ready. They had all been so jealous. But now, he was nothing, worse than nothing. If he didn't bring her back, he wouldn't only lose the princess, but his head. The prince sat slumped in his saddle, his tongue stuck in his dry mouth. His stomach felt like it was eating itself, but he didn't care. He pointed his horse in a direction and just let it trot. For days, three days in fact, it didn't matter. He was going to die anyway. If he went after the princess, he was going to need to fight something that could turn into a tornado. If he didn't, the king would have his head. He didn't care about himself. It was his horse that didn't deserve it. The animal was loyal and hardworking, so it didn't even attempt to stop over the past few days. But now, the prince could feel it growing weak he decided to stop by a small creek to allow it to rest. And Prince Dobertek got down from the horse and just laid down in the dirt until sleep took him. We'll see the prince wake up to a really terrifying alarm clock and we'll return to Princess P in the invisibility cap. But that will be right after this. All right, now back to the show. Outside of Princess P's room, the dwarf checked his beard braids for the third time before he reached for his keys to the room. He'd been practicing his menacing lines with the slaves all day, and he thought he finally settled on something that was imposing but impressive. He looked in the mirror by the door, gave himself a I-look-good-and-I-know-it glance and ordered his slave to unlock the door. He eschewed the throne this time and instead stood like a king atop a moving platform that the slaves carried on their shoulders. He cast a stern glance around the room, landing on the chair where she had been sitting the last time, but didn't see her there. 
maintained his same level of gravitas as he looked at the bed. Nope, not there either. His furrowed brow swept over the table and... Wait, seriously? Okay, where was she? He gave his slaves the signal to lower him to the ground, and soon he was walking across the room, yelling out that, after kidnapping countless young women, she was the first one to try to hide in a prison room. He was seven inches tall and could look absolutely everywhere, and there was only one way in or out, and they were watching the door, so congrats. She's stupid. He looked behind all the curtains, under the bed, and even had a slave race him up the chimney. He was perplexed. There was no way she could get out of this room with the door closed, and then a chill ran up his spine. What if she didn't leave? His hand went to his belt. His hat was gone. He turned to the man at the door and got his attention. As the man stepped forward, clearing the doorway, the dwarf screamed as he saw the tapestry by the door move. Anyone could have mistaken it for the wind if they weren't in his sealed prison room. He screamed for his slaves to come to him and hurry. She had escaped. Princess P was grateful that he had realized she was wearing the invisibility cap. Him inadvertently coined the slave had given her just enough time to slip behind the man and run out into the hallway to freedom. The only problem? She had been taken to this place while she was unconscious. She had no idea how to get out of the labyrinth of hallways. She tried to stick to the carpeted sections to muffle her footsteps. But when she heard shouting behind her and then all around her, telling slaves and soldiers to raise the alarm and close the gates. She knew she had to find a way out of there quickly. She made it outside of the castle through one of the last open doors, well, windows. No one had really thought of the kitchen until the rest of the castle was sealed, and she dove out the second-story window and rolled down the sloping roof until she hit the ground hard. She stood, made sure the hat was on her head, and checked herself. Nothing was broken, only bruised. She stood and ran for the gate. The courtyard was full of people rushing around and trying to seal everything off that no one heard her panting and running at a full sprint to make it before the drawbridge was up. She didn't care what was in the moat or if they were on a cliff and she ended up craning to her death. She wasn't going to be a captive. She saw the drawbridge that was starting to rise and she ran as fast as she could. She slipped past the people at the gate when it was a quarter of the way up and started climbing it when it was halfway. It was then that she knew she wouldn't make it. She kept trying, though, and her fingernails were bloody, clawing at the wood, trying to climb, but she couldn't do it. It was like trying to climb a flat wall. She slid back down to the ground and rolled under the portcullis as it slammed down. She slipped back past the people by the wall and looked around. No doubt every external door and window of the massive castle had been shut up at this point, and there would likely be slaves positioned by the openings in the wall. She was trapped. Granted, she was invisible and just needed to bide her time for a chance to escape, but she was trapped nonetheless. She walked over, past the slaves running to and fro to shore up every possible escape and grabbed a couple of peaches from the tree. It wasn't all-you-could-eat cake, but that and the other food in the garden would keep her alive. She saw the dwarf being carried by his slaves as he talked to the people at the gate. She could hear that they were assuring him that they put the gate up as soon as they heard the portcullis too. They had no doubt that she was still within the walls, if not still trapped in the castle. Then, the princess smiled. The doorway into the castle was blocked by slaves on either side, so the princess lined herself up with the opening, got about five feet from the dwarf, standing like a general atop his platform, 
and the princess threw the peach. If it had been any farther away, the dwarf might have been able to block it, or at least have his beard form kind of a protective barrier Groot style and shield him from most of the impact. As it stood, though, he could only have a vague awareness of the pain that was coming his way before the peach hit him. It was basically point blank and sent him sprawling toward the ground. It would be painful to have someone fling a peach at us as hard as they could. Chris and I had a long discussion about this. I said it would be like being hit by a juicy, juicy truck. And she said it would be like having the Kool-Aid man burst through a wall right next to you. Regardless, at seven inches tall, having a ripe, full peach flung at you would be devastatingly painful. And it was. It hit him square in the torso and crushed all of his tiny bones. He dropped to the ground and laid there dying. For about five seconds, the slaves and soldiers watched as he whispered a few words and his legs returned to their right orientation and all the bones that were jutting out of his skin stopped doing that. He stood and made a little stairway out of his beard, walking up to the platform and picking pieces of peach from his coat while yelling to his slaves and soldiers who were desperately trying to hide their snickering. But the princess was already gone. As soon as she threw the peach, she bolted to another part of the castle to huddle in a corner, stifling her own laughter as she did. There was one time growing up that my neighbor's dog got a hold of a rabbit. I can't adequately do it justice, but a rabbit in life-threatening pain makes an alarmingly loud and off-putting sound. It would be a horrifying alarm clock. And it's exactly what Prince Dobertek woke up to. He jumped to his feet and looked for the source of the noise. Maybe because he really wanted to help the creature being attacked, or maybe because this rabbit wasn't making it easy for the owl, and the prince really wanted to silence that annoying alarm, but the prince picked up an object from the ground, stumbled over to the owl, and bludgeoned it to death with one strike. He sat down by a bush, and the rabbit came out, licked his hands in thanks, and then hopped away. He sat there for a moment or two, maybe wondering what owl tastes like when he looked down to his right hand, to the object he had picked up to kill the owl. The fact that it was a human skull would have alarmed him if it wasn't immediately overshadowed by the fact that the skull started talking to him. The prince screamed and dropped the skull, but that didn't stop the thing from thanking him for using the skull to kill an owl. That was the nicest thing anyone had done for him in 750 years. Prince Dobertek paused. There was some backstory here he was missing. The skull told him that he had no idea. The skull said that he had once belonged to a man who had taken his own life. And the punishment in this situation was for him to exist as a skull until he was able to save the life of one of God's creatures. Which kind of feels like an unfair stipulation because, I don't know if you know this, it's really hard to do anything when you're just a sentient skull. Anyway, the prince had saved him by using him to save the life of the poor rabbit. What about the owl? The prince said, still trying to get up to speed on this strange turn of events. In saving one animal, didn't we kill another one of God's creatures? Yeah, let's not worry about that, the skull said. Apparently God has something against owls, because the rabbit counted. I'm set free. Anyway, being a magical talking skull that has rolled over the earth for nearly a thousand years, you learn a thing or two, like how to summon the fastest horse in the world with only a poem. Prince Dobotek, by this point, was fairly certain he was hallucinating from days without food and water, and humored the skull by listening to the poem. 
it went like this. Dappled horse with mane of gold, horse of wonder, come to me. Walk not the earth, for I am told, you fly like birds over the sea. After he was finished, the skull asked for one last kindness, to be buried. Prince dug a small hole and dropped the skull in. After he covered it with dirt and said the prayers, he saw a small blue flame rise from the hole and shoot off toward heaven. The man's soul had been set free. After he had completed the burial, the prince saw that the owl was already starting to attract flies, so he returned to his spot by his sleeping horse and went back to sleep. When Prince Dobertek awoke, he saw that his horse was not sleeping. He had worked the horse too hard, and now it was dead. It didn't matter. Not to Dobertek. Fully immersed in self-pity, he thought that he'd be dead soon too. The best thing he could do was wander out into the wastes and hope he would just collapse. Better than waiting for the king to shame him and take his head, or worse, watching another prince come back with a princess and have to watch the love of his life marry another man. The thought of the princess brought a fresh pain. He decided that he would crawl into a hole so dark that no one would ever learn what became of him. He would never give them the satisfaction. As his feet dragged on the ground, he thought of what the skull had said. <laughs> a talking skull. If it wasn't a complete hallucination, and the prince was pretty confident it was, then a magic horse? That could change everything. He chuckled. Then he thought about it. In his extremely exhausted state, it kind of wasn't so crazy to think about a magic horse coming across the plains when called. His face got serious, and he strained to remember the words. After about ten minutes of trying to remember his conversation with a talking skull, he remembered the words exactly. Dappled horse with mane of gold, horse of wonder, come to me. Walk not the earth, for I am told you fly like birds over land and sea. This is kind of stupid, is the thought that he almost had time to finish, before lightning struck right before him, and a golden, shimmering horse stood there, smoke coming out of its nostrils. What are your orders, Prince Dobertek? The horse said, looking at the prince, and then holding his head aloft, and staring off into the horizon, awaiting his next mission. Prince Dobertek stood there, mouth agape, and then he realized the horse was waiting for an answer. Uh, help? Help me? Dobertek asked. Luckily, this wasn't a monkey's paw situation. The incredibly open-ended question was met with a nod, and the horse leaned down. Absolutely, the horse said. Now climb in my ear. Okay, wait, wait, you meant climbing your back, right? The prince said. No. I said, climb in my ear, the horse said, leaning to present his ear. Why? I'm helping you. You wanted to be helped. This is how I help. Now, if you wish, climb in my ear, the horse said, still looking forward with a serious horse face. Is that, is it going to grow or something? Dobertick said, touching the horse's ear. Do ears normally grow? The horse asked. I, I guess not. The prince said as he gripped the outer edge of the ear. So, feet first, or? Whatever is most comfortable for you, my master, the horse replied. Well, none of this is really comfortable. You know what? I'll go in head first. Just dive right in, you know? Prince Dobertick started pinky first, then hand, and then arm. The horse's ear was, apparently, bigger on the inside. Ten minutes after he entered the horse's ear, his foot came out the other side, and then a leg, then his bottom half, and finally he dropped to the ground, 
earwax clinging to his new suit of armor, while the horse stood there stoically. The prince, who until this moment had given up all hope and essentially accepted his death, stood tall. He gripped his new sword and shield and looked on his armor. You have super strength now, too, the horse informed him. Not like Superman super strength, more like Batman or Wolverine. You're still human, but you can really lift a lot. Dobrik stomped his foot on the ground, and thunder rumbled all around him. Oh yeah, and your feet do that now, too. Power coursing through his body, new suit of armor, magical horse friend. Dobrik told the horse that if he was ready, they had a princess to save. The horse gave him a stern horse nod, but said that they had to make one stop. They had to get something. A sword. The only one able to kill their enemy. And it was guarded by his brother. Next week, Dobrotek will arrive for the giant to confront all that family drama, and Princess P will continue messing with the dwarf. Oh, and also, the bit about the neighbor's rabbit earlier on? Don't worry. The rabbit got away. We were able to get the dog away from him. If you were worried about what happened to a rabbit 20 years ago. Hey, so there's a new episode of Fictional Lot this week. It's our other podcast where we adapt stories from classic lit. In the episode that just came out yesterday, we started the story of The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. To check it out, just go to fictional.fm or search for Fictional wherever you get your podcasts. The creature this time is the Baromets, or the Vegetable Lamb. It's a legendary creature from Central Asia. The Vegetable Lamb is exactly like it sounds. It's a lamb. That's also a vegetable. As we all know, certain trees don't grow fruit, but animals. And the Vegetable Lamb is one such example of that. One day, a tiny lamb will emerge from the leaves around a tree and venture forth. The tree is, apparently, one of those parents that does the leash thing because the lamb remains tethered to the tree throughout most of its lamb infancy and lamb childhood via a lamb umbilical cord. It will eat up the surrounding grass until the day comes where the area around the tree is clear. The lamb will then turn back and eat the tree in a rite of passage slash maybe gross bit of cannibalism. When that's done, the lamb will be free to start its own life in the wide world, a life that usually includes being eaten by wolves almost instantly. If you think the vegetable lamb is a nice loophole, so you can eat meat but still get vegetables, you should know that the lamb's meat tastes exactly like fish, and its blood tastes like honey. This creature has exactly the origin story you would think. People traveling from Europe to Central Asia saw a cotton-like plant, and assumed that, since it made little white puffy things that kind of looked like sheep's wool, then these must be little baby sheep that just hadn't matured yet. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and produced by Carissa Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>